Greetings, and welcome to Etzheim's weekly podcast, recorded live in Richardson, Texas. We invite you now to join us for one of our synagogue's Shabbat messages. All right, Shabbat Shalom. I am not a country western music fan, but I heard a great country song this week on the radio by a group never heard of before called the Gold Coast Singers. Uh, and the name of the song was Plastic Jesus. And on the overhead, here's how it goes. We have it on the overhead? There we go. I don't care if it rains or freezes, long as I've got my plastic Jesus riding on the dashboard of my car <laughs> through my trials and tribulations and my travels through the nations. With my plastic Jesus, I'll go far. Now, this song makes us laugh, probably makes us wince. <laughs> but the plastic Jesus phenomena is all around us. And if we're honest, it's within us as well. When it comes to Yeshua, even for us enlightened souls in the Messianic movement, our image of Yeshua sometimes can be more plastic than real. Graven image making is deeply embedded ever since the fall, in all the sons of Adam and all the daughters of Eve. Most people see Yeshua as a helpful friend rather than a stern judge of wayward morals. The modern church sings, what a friend we have in Jesus. Yeshua, the friend who becomes more and more meek and mild and submissive uh, and emasculated with each passing decade. Uh, disempowered, uh, pacifist, feminized. He's seen with soft skin and, and soft hands, who's never done a day's manual labor in his life. Uh, blonde, flowing hair, uh, pale skin, blue eyes. He's uh, got a little lamb on his shoulders. Looks like a model from a 1980s shampoo commercial. <laughs> and before we get too judgmental of others, we, in the Messianic movement, have our own graven images, our own plastic Yeshua, often seeing him as nothing more than the best of the rabbis. But the scriptures, as we'll see today in Daniel chapter 7, portray Messiah as the glorious son of man, a supremely divine and regal figure who judged the earth with a rod of iron and destroy his enemies and take up his eternal throne, establishing a universal kingdom that will never end and a dominion that will never cease. Now, by virtue of the miracle of the incarnation, Scripture tells us that when we see Yeshua in some mysterious way, we see the fullness of the Godhead dwelling in bodily form. Therefore, when we form inappropriate images of who Yeshua is, we're left with nothing but a plastic Jesus, a graven image, an idol. Now, we might not have a plastic of Jesus on the dashboard of our car, God forbid, <laughs> but idolatrous images uh, are within many of our thoughts. Uh, the image of the contemporary church uh, gives us, you know, little Lord, little Lord Yeshua laying down his sweet head, uh, away in a manger, which was probably a sukkah, actually. <laughs> uh, this baby 
meek and mild. He's a helpless infant. The type you go up to and you tickle under his chin, you know, kuchi kuchi koo. But in Daniel chapter 7, a very different picture emerges. So turn with me. Let's turn to Daniel 7 on the overhead. Uh, Daniel 7, beginning in verse 1. In the first year of Belshazzar, Belshazzar, the king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream. And visions passed through his mind as he was lying on his bed. He wrote down the substance of his dream. Daniel said, in my vision that night, I looked, and there before me were the four winds of heaven, churning up the great sea. Four great beasts, each different from the others, came up out of the sea. The first was like a lion and had wings like an eagle. I watched till its wings were torn off and it lifted from the ground and it stood on two feet like a human being. And a human heart was given to it. And there before me was a second beast, which looked like a bear. It was raised up on one of its sides and had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. It was told, get up and eat your fill of flesh. After that I looked, and before me was another beast, one that looked like a leopard. And on its back it had four wings, like those of a bird. Uh, and and the, uh, the beast had four heads, and it was given authority to rule. After that, in my night visions, I looked, and there before me was a fourth beast, terrifying uh, and frightening and very powerful. It had large iron teeth. And it crushed and devoured its victims and trampled underfoot whatever was left. It was different from all the former beasts. It had ten horns. While I was thinking about the horns, uh, there before me was another horn, a little one, which came up among them. And three of the first horns were uprooted before it. Before it. This horn had eyes like the, like the eyes of a man and a mouth that spoke boastfully. Everything perfectly clear? <laughs> Daniel's vision here is portrayed on the background or backdrop of a great sea, which is lashed into fury by the four winds uh, of heaven. Troubled waters of the sea are used in scripture to represent the restless nations of the world. Uh, The sea itself is a symbol of chaos, and it's also a symbol of the Gentile nations in the scriptures. So, for example, we read this in Revelation 17.5. The angel said to me, the waters you saw where the prostitute sits are peoples, multitudes, nations, and languages. Now, out of the turmoil of the sea, these Gentile nations arise these four great beasts, which are to- we're told in Daniel 7, 17, are the four great world empires uh, that will arise. The first beast is it's like a lion uh, with eagle's wings. This represents the ba- Babylonian empire. In fact, both Jeremiah and Ezekiel refer to Babylon and to Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, as both a lion and an eagle. Uh, And archaeologists have actually unearthed numerous sculptures and and building bricks depicting Babylon as a winged lion. Daniel watches the wings of of this lion are plucked off. The lion stands erect as a man, and the heart of a man is given to it. Now, if you recall from our prior sessions, this describes exactly what happened to Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapter 4. He was given the vision of himself as this great tree uh, that was cut down, only its stump was left, uh, his wings were clipped. He was given the mind of an animal for seven years and ate grass like cattle. He was humbled and he lost his sanity. Later, he was given back the heart of a man when he repented and his humanity was restored. The bear in Daniel's vision represents the Medio Persian Empire. The bear is slower moving and larger than, than an eagle or a lion. 
the army of, of the Babylonian Persian Empire was known for its huge size and its slow movements, uh, m much more than the army of Babylon. One side of the bears was higher than the other, representing the fact that the, the Persians wielded more authority than the Medes in, in the kingdom, uh, and three ribs are in its mouth, representing probably three other great kingdoms that Medo-Persia conquered, uh, Lydia, Babylon, and Egypt. The third beast in Daniel's dream is, is a leopard with four wings and four heads, representing Greece. The four wings illustrate a swift conquest that added to the natural swiftness of the, of the leopard, and it illustrates the way Alexander the Great conquered the known world faster than any other ancient ruler. He invented lightning warfare, uh, featuring smaller but incredibly swift and agile armies that, that could outflank the lumbering bear of the, of the Medo-Persian Empire, the same way that the, the smaller British fleet defeated the, the huge Spanish Armada. After his death, Alexander's empire was divided among his four generals, hence the four heads of the leopard. Note now how God is using these Gentile nations to bring judgment on Israel for their sin, uh, for their unbelief, for, for their apostasy. Uh, look at these words of, of, from Hosea chapter 13, Hosea 13 verse 7. The Lord says, I'll come upon them like a lion, uh, like a leopard I'll lurk by the path. Like a bear robbed of her cubs, I'll attack them and rip them open. Like a lion, I'll devour them. A wild animal will tear them apart. Now this fourth and final beast, this wild animal, too terrible to even give a name to, only a description. It's terrifying, frightening, very powerful. It's got large iron teeth. In Nebuchadnezzar's image of the statue of the man back in Daniel chapter 2, iron, iron represented the Roman Empire, the fourth and final great world empire. The scriptures, therefore, seems to point to the revival of the Roman Empire in some kind of final form uh, in the last days. And Daniel's vision, the behavior of this fourth beast, it's so cruel and savage that it can't be compared to any other animal. Here's a formidable uh, and frightening creature, truly appalling in its terrible power. Uh, with its great iron teeth, it devours and breaks into pieces its victims, crushing under its feet whatever's left. Here is what's called a truly evil empire. <laughs> Change what we see even today in communist Russia and China. Daniel uses the imagery of his day to describe these things he's seeing. So if he were writing today, perhaps this fourth beast would advise sending out laser beams, uh, its mouth spewing nuclear poison, its limbs dispatching hypersonic missiles or, or photon torpedoes. <laughs> the world does not get better as we increase in knowledge. Just the opposite. Our fallen nature is just simply capable of more destructive evil. This fourth beast has ten horns. Horns in the scripture are symbols of power and symbols of kingdoms. Uh, people have uh, speculated throughout the ages the identity of, the, of these ten kings trying to predict the end of the age. They've been linked, for example, to the ten kings of the Roman Empire, uh, the ten kings set up by Napoleon, the ten nations of, of the European common market, Everyone trying to predict the time for the, for the rise of the false Messiah and the return of Yeshua. The problem with this approach is you can go around looking for any political organization which happens to have ten members and say, ah, the ten horns. So, for example, do you know how many members are on the Dallas City Council? <laughs> Guess. <laughs> That's right, ten. <laughs> do you see the problem with this approach to Scripture? For centuries, people have been trying to, to match up uh, which beast, which horn, which country, which ruler. And every time 
that, uh, they do it and they're wrong, the world and the world just goes on as before. The gospel loses credibility before a watching world. So I caution you against this kind of end time speculation uh, and this guessing game approach to scripture. You know, with this kind of literature, you've got to start with the context. Daniel's writing to the people of God in exile. He receives his vision in the first year of Belshazzar's reign. Nebuchadnezzar, who had this conversion experience and finally was following God, he's now dead. Uh, our fellow Jews are living now under a decadent, pagan, blasphemous king. The pe God's people are in for a long time of suffering uh, and discouragement. They're going to be tempted to give up their faith. Daniel's vision says, yes, there will be persecution and tyranny and suffering. But here's the big picture. Here's the grand sweep of history. In the long term, God will reign and prevail and rule. So do not give up hope. Keep the faith. Verse 8 talks about this little horn that, that rises up among the, the other ten on the fourth beast. There's a mouth that speaks boastfully. We've seen this theme before throughout the book of Daniel. Uh, uh, the, the arrogance of Nebuchadnezzar. You know, the vanity of Belshazzar. Pride goes before a fall. Verse 8 also tells us this little horn has, has numerous eyes. No one can escape or, or hide from him. Uh, something very easy to imagine, you know, today in our high-tech age of computers and AI and spy satellites, listening devices, hidden CCTV cameras. By the way, this picture of, of the, all the eyes also reminds me of the lidless eye of Sauron in Lord of the Rings. <laughs> Never sleeping, always watching, always planning evil. This description of the fourth beast is also very similar to the description of the false messiah, the anti-messiah in Revelation 13. Look at Revelation 13, verse 1. And he stood on the sand of the seashore, uh, and I saw a beast coming up out of the sea, having ten horns and seven heads. And on his horns were ten crowns, and on his head were blasphemous names. And the beast I saw was like a leopard, his feet were like those of a bear, his mouth like the mouth of a lion. Sound familiar? And the dragon gave him power and a throne and great authority. And I saw one of its heads as if it had been slain, and the fatal wound was, was healed. And the whole earth was amazed and followed after the beast. Uh, and they worshipped the dragon because he, he gave his authority to the beast. And they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like unto the beast? Who is able to wage war with him? And there was given to him a mouth speaking arrogant, word, arrogant words and blasphemies, an authority to act for 42 months was given to him. And he opened his mouth in blasphemies against God to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle, that is, those who dwell in heaven. And it was given to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And authority over every tribe and people and tongue and nation was given to him. And all who dwell on the earth will worship him. Everyone whose name has not been written from the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who's been slain. The false Messiah is the epitome of arrogance and pride. But we see it in smaller ways around us all the time. Uh, here's a true story from the first Gulf War. A new CO, a new commanding officer, was assigned to an army base in the Middle East. It was his first day on the base in his brand new office, a private comes into the office, and this new CEO, he wants to look important and look impressive. So he picks up the phone, and he pretends he's talking to General Schwarzkopf. Yes, sir, General Schwarzkopf. You can count on me, sir. I'll take care of it. He bangs down the phone. Yes, private. Well, what do you want? 
Private says, I'm here to install your phone, sir. <laughs> Pride leadeth to a fall. <laughs> That's what happens, what will happen to this little horn with a boastful mouth. Look at Daniel 7, uh, verse 25. He'll speak against the Most High uh, and oppress his holy people, try to change the set times and laws. The holy people will be delivered into his hands for a time and times and half a time. Notice that the anti-Messiah will attempt to make changes to, quote, the set times, meaning the Moedim, the appointed times, uh, the biblical feast days, uh, Pesach, Shavuot, Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, Sukkot. He'll also attempt to change the laws, change the Torah, change, change God's law. This is the sign of the false Messiah. He'll change and replace the Shabbat, Pesach, Sukkot, the Torah, uh, with the new holidays and new laws. And verse 25 tells us that the Zadokim, uh, the saints, will be given over to his hand for time and times and half a time, three and a half years. This is the same 42 months we just read about in Revelation 13. You can't understand the book of Revelation without understanding the book of Daniel. So we see here that there are demonic forces in the world, uh, hostile to the Lord. Uh, they're powerful and they're real. And therefore, we as the people of God, we can expect opposition and, and danger and suffering and persecution. And so when it comes, do not be surprised and do not give in or give up. Daniel 7, verse 21. As I watched, the horn was waging war against the saints and prevailing. This happened in Daniel's day and it will recur again in the future. Daniel would see the Babylonians, you know, wage war against Israel, overpower them, destroy the temple, lead them into captivity. That was not supposed to happen to God's people. Uh, this shook Israel to the core of their being. This shook their faith. This needed to be addressed. Daniel had seen the king tell his people that they must, Daniel's people, they must choose between idolatry or death. He heard about his three friends being thrown into the fiery furnace. Uh, he himself would later be thrown into the lion's den. We read about it last week. All this really happened. Suffering is to be expected by the Lord's righteous ones before they enter the glory of God's kingdom. Daniel 7 and Revelation 13 both say that prior to the coming of God's kingdom, the saints will suffer at the hands of ungodly rulers. We see this throughout the scriptures. Before you were delivered out of Egypt, our Jewish people suffered slavery and bondage and hard labor and attempted genocide under the Egyptians. Yeshua himself suffered beating and torture and crucifixion and death. And the servant is not greater than his master. Indeed, we read this in uh, 2 Timothy 3.12. Indeed, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Messiah will be persecuted. Those who reign with Messiah are those who have first suffered with him. Suffering is an inevitable part of the process which leads to glory. Here's an example uh, from today. This is a recent report of, of, of Christian persecution in Sudan uh, by a Muslim army. Uh, there's this girl, the soldiers they couldn't stop talking about, a girl from Darfur uh, whom they raped throughout the afternoon. And through it all, while the other women of the village screamed and cried, this girl sang hymns, powerful evangelical songs. She kept right on singing even after they finished raping her and they shot her in the chest. She lay there in the mud with blood flowing from her chest, 
And she kept on singing. A bit weaker than before, but still singing to the Lord. The soldiers, stupefied, watched and then pointed. When they grew tired of the game, they shot her again. But still she sang. Their wonder now began to turn to fear. Finally, they unsheathed their machetes and hacked through her neck, and at last the singing stopped, stopped. This really happened in our day. That's a real person who loved and served Yeshua. She knows firsthand about the war being waged against the saints. Millions of our brothers and sisters in Messiah, down through the ages, know about it. It's important for us to understand this uh, because life for us in this room uh, is quite a bit more comfortable. Uh, we're not thrown into jail for our faith, at least not yet, uh, like they are today in China and North Korea, or tortured for our belief, like they are today in Sudan and Nigeria and Pakistan. We're not living in desperate poverty in places where there's no clean drinking water or modern medicine, uh, like much of Africa and Southeast Asia. We need to understand that the freedom and the prosperity in which we live as God's people today is an anomaly. This is not normal. We're tempted to think that when, when we follow the Lord, life is supposed to be easy. We're tempted here in America to think that the gospel promises uh, success uh, and happy endings uh, and your best life now. And if, and if that's not you, then you must have messed up. And so if we face problems with our health or our job, if our relationship crumbles, if we don't get uh, the possessions we want, our faith is shaken. And we're mad at God for not keeping his end of the bargain. Our little plastic Jesus isn't coming through. So we need to hear Daniel's words. There is a war going on. And it's not primarily a war about physical suffering, although it can be. It's primarily a spiritual war. A war to pry you away from the Lord. It went, on, it went on in Daniel's day. It's going on today. It's waged primarily on the battlefield of the human heart. Yours and mine. And so we must put on the full armor of God. Uh, the belt of truth. The breastplate of righteousness. The shield of faith. The, the helmet of salvation. Uh, the, the shoes of the gospel. The sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And we must pray to get on your knees and engage in warfare for your soul, for your spouse's soul, for your children and your grandchildren's soul. Daniel says there is a war. Expect problems in the world. Resist the enemy. Cling to Yeshua. Then in Daniel's vision, there's this abrupt change, a change in the scenery from earth up to heaven. Look at Daniel 7 verse 9. As I looked, thrones were set up, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was as white as snow. The hair of his head was white like wool. Uh, his throne was, was flaming with fire, and the wheels were all ablaze. Rivers of fire was flowing, a river of fire was flowing out from, from before him. Thousands upon thousands attended him, and 10,000 times 10,000 stood be, uh, before him. The court sat, and the books were opened. And I continued to watch because of the boastful words the horn was speaking. I kept looking until the beast was slain, 
and its body destroyed and thrown into the blazing fire. These verses describe God Almighty, the Ancient of Days. People have always wondered, you know, what is God like? Who is he really? Here's a description of God written by an eight-year-old, a, guy, a little kid named, named Daniel Dutton, in a homework assignment to explain God. Uh, and here's what he wrote. One of God's main jobs is making people. He makes them to replace the ones that die. So there'll always be enough people to take care of things on earth. He doesn't make grown-ups, just babies. I think because they're smaller and easier to make. That way, he doesn't have to take up his time teaching them to talk and walk. He can leave that job to the mothers and fathers. God's second most important job is listening to prayers. An awful lot of this goes on since some people, like preachers, pray even when it's not bedtime. God doesn't have time to listen to radio or TV, but because of this, all these prayers, because he hears everything, there must be a, a terrible lot of noise in his ears unless he's thought of some way to turn it off. That's what my dad does when my mom talks too much. <laughs> God sees and hears everything and is everywhere, which keeps him pretty busy. So you shouldn't waste this time by going over your mom's and your dad's head asking for something they already told you you couldn't have. Yeshua is God's son. He used to do all the hard work, like walking on water and miracles and trying to teach people who didn't want to learn about God. They finally got tired of him preaching to them, and they crucified him. But he was good and kind, like his father. And he told them, uh, he told his father they didn't know what they were doing and, and to forgive them. And God said, okay. His dad, God, appreciated everything he was doing and all his hard work on earth. He told him he didn't have to go out on the road anymore. <laughs> he could stay in heaven. And now he helps his dad, he helps his dad out by listening to prayers and making sure the important things, uh, things important to God get taken care of uh, and which ones he can take care of without having to bother his dad. Uh, like a wife, only more important. <laughs> you can pray anytime you want. God and Yeshua have worked it out so that one of them is on duty at all times. You should always go to services on Shabbat because that makes God happy. And if there's anyone you want to make happy, it's God. So don't skip services and go to the beach. My dad did this once and my mom got mad. <laughs> if you don't believe in God, you'll be lonely because your parents can't go everywhere with you like the camp, but God can. It's good to know he's around when you're scared at night or when you can't swim or the big kids throw you into the pool. But you shouldn't just think of what God can do for you. I figure God put me here. He can take me back anytime he pleases. And that's why I believe in God. <laughs> Written by an eight-year-old. <laughs> what God is like to him. Now Daniel uses images and symbols to convey to us what God is like. So look at Daniel 7 verse 9. Thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. This is a picture of, the, of a heavenly court coming into session. It's Yom Hadin. It's, the, it's judgment day. Daniel 7, verse 10, the court was seated and the books were opened. It's Rosh Hashanah, the Feast of Trumpets, when we're inscribed in either the Sefer Chaim, the Book of Life, or the Sefer Hamet, the Book of Death. Revelation 20, verse 12, talks about this on the overhead. Uh, I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the Book of Life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books 
according to their deeds. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. One day, the Lord is going to set things right, and we all must render an account. Will you be found written in the Lamb's book of life? The decision is yours. But one day, there will be justice. The Ancient of Days will judge with righteousness and holiness. Now, this boasting horn in Daniel 7, he seems to be getting away with, with these blasphemies and the oppression of the saints. As the wicked prosper in their sin, it seems like this can continue on forever without fear of any divine judgment. But their perception is wrong. For suddenly, without warning, their day of destruction will come like a thief in the night. And it will be too late to repent. As the righteous suffer at the hands of the wicked, it may seem like all hope is lost. But things are not as they seem. When we least expect it, the Lord will return. And the wicked will be punished. And the kingdom of God will be established forever. You know, we see a gap between suffering and glory. But God does not. Suffering and glory are all part of one work. The scriptures liken the coming of, of the Messiah to the birth of a child. Uh, redemption is preceded by birth pangs. Uh, the birth pangs of the Messiah. Salvation is a process, first of suffering and then of glory. So expect injustice and tribulation in this world. And do not lose hope. There is a throne. The Ancient of Days is on the throne. He is in control. And Daniel says justice is coming one day. Some of you may have been treated unfairly. Uh, maybe by an employer or, or a coworker, uh, or a college professor or by a parent, or by a spouse. And the thought that they're going to get away with it eats you up. And you've been carrying this grudge against them, hoping for bad things to happen to them. Friends, they're going to face justice one day. Everyone who has wounded or hated another, everyone who's defied God's laws, will be held accountable. All those without the blood of the Lamb will face judgment. No one's going to get away with anything. There will be justice. And the Lord therefore says this in Romans 12, verse 17. Do not repay evil for evil. Don't take revenge, but leave room for God's wrath. For it's written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, saith the Lord. And then Daniel continues to describe the ancient of days. Look at Daniel 7, verse 9. His clothing was white as snow. The hair of his head was white like wool. This is a picture of purity. Whiteness of purity. Uh, Isaiah says this in Isaiah 1, verse 18. Though your sins are as scarlet, they'll be white as snow. God is pure and perfectly holy. Uh, he's without spot or blemish. Likewise, Yeshua says in Matthew 5, verse 8, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. First John 3, verse 3, key verse. Everyone who has this hope, this hope in Yeshua's return, purifies himself just as God is pure. So ask yourself, am I living in purity? Do I say no to temptation? How pure am I in God's sight? How pure are my words, uh, my deeds, my thoughts? What I, what I allow my eyes to look at? Uh, the motives and the intentions of my heart? I know there's still impurity in my life. 
uh, in my heart. And I'm praying for the Lord to cleanse me and refine me and make me holy. And I invite you to join me in that same work, that same prayer. Ask yourself today, is there anything in my life that needs purifying? For example, maybe it involves your finances or your business dealings. Maybe it involves your lack of honesty uh, or your inability to control your temper, uh, your anger. Or maybe it's a secret addiction, uh, drugs or alcohol or pornography or sexual immorality uh, or resentment against another or lack of forgiveness or judgmentalism and a critical spirit or failure to honor your parents or your spouse. Maybe it's a rebellious spirit uh, and, and disobedience and disrespect to authority. Maybe it involves your, your self-justification, making excuses to justify your behavior. I'm challenging you to humble yourself and to repent and to be accountable and to confess your sins. Again, 1 John 3, 3. Everyone who has this hope purifies himself. So be pure even as God is pure. Daniel 7, verse 9 again. His throne was flaming with fire. Its wheels were all ablaze. A river of fire was flowing, coming out from before him. Fire in the scriptures is a symbol of God's power. So for example, in Hebrews 12, 29, our God is a consuming fire. He's not tame. He's not safe. And the overhead, remember the famous line from the Lion, the Witch, in the Wardrobe? Susan asks Mrs. Beaver, is Aslan, the Lion King, is he safe? Safe? Safe, said Mrs. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he's not safe. But he's good. He's the king. He's the awesome and powerful God, the Lion of the tribe of Judah. Genesis 49.9, Judah is a lion's whelp. He crouches down like a lion. Who can rouse him? He isn't one to be carelessly reckoned with. Daniel 7, verse 11. But I continued to watch because of the boastful words that the horn was speaking. I kept looking till the beast was slain and its body destroyed and thrown into the blazing fire. So here's this great beast. It's got huge, large iron teeth, the ten horns, terrifying and powerful. We might expect this giant knockdown, drag-out battle, right? Between this great beast and the Lord. That's how many people view spiritual warfare. But notice what happens here. Daniel 7, verse 11. I kept looking until the beast was slain and its body destroyed. All of a sudden, God just snaps his fingers and it's over. There is no contest. You see, we serve an infinite, omnipotent God. His power is not challenged by any force in the universe. God allows spiritual struggles to go on because of his desires that you should freely choose to follow him. That's why 2 Peter 3, 9 says, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, his promise to return. As some count slowness, he is patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. We live in the day today of God's patience. So this, so this fallen world goes on. But do not be fooled. Once the Lord decides the struggle is over, once he decides the opportunity for repentance is done, the time for judgment will come. Hebrews 2, verse 3. For how shall we escape if we neglect or ignore so great a salvation? Daniel goes on, seven verse, verse Daniel 7, verse 13. Then I saw one, like a son of man, 
coming with the clouds. This is Yeshua's favorite term of self-designation, son of man. He uses this title from here in Daniel 7 to describe himself more than any other term. And then it's a rich term. Son of man, first of all, implies one who's the head of all humanity. The perfect representative human. But as Daniel 7 points out, it's also a term for one who is divine. Yeshua uses it over and over again to describe himself. Uh, and, and he applied this title in direct reference to Daniel's prophecy. Uh, it's no accident he calls himself the son of man. Uh, he's telling Israel, I'm the one of whom Daniel spoke. I'm the one to whom the ancient of days gives the kingdom. So for example, look at Matthew 9 verse 6. The son of man has power to forgive sins. Only God can forgive sins. What's the implication of what Yeshua was saying? Matthew 12, verse 8. The Son of Man is Lord of the Shabbat. He's calling himself one who, the one who's created the Shabbat. Matthew 12, 40. The Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the belly of the earth, referring to his resurrection thereafter. Matthew 16, 27. For the Son of Man's going to come in his Father's glory with his angels. And then reward each person according to what they have done. Matthew 19, 28. In the, in the resurrection, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, his disciples will sit upon 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. However, before that happens, this happens first. Matthew 17, 22. The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he'll be raised on the third day. And concerning his return, we read this prophecy, uh, Matthew 24, 30. And then shall the sign of the Son of Man appear in the sky. And all the tribes of the land will mourn. And they'll see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. Both Matthew 24 and Daniel 7 say the Son of Man comes with the clouds of heaven. Clouds in the scripture are a symbol of deity. God is seen manifest in the clouds. So, for example, we read this in 1 Thessalonians 4, 17. Then we who are alive and remain should be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Revelation 1, verse 7. Behold, he's coming with the clouds. In Acts 1, Yeshua was taking up in the clouds, up into heaven. And we read this in Matthew 24, 30, speaking of, of his return. Then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven, and all the tribes of the earth shall mourn, so see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven. So these New Testament fulfillments show us these references to the Son of Man and the coming of the clouds in Daniel 7 are clearly references to Yeshua. Now just as the destruction of this fourth beast and the blaspheming horn in Daniel 7 comes as a complete shock to the world, so too Yeshua's second coming will be a shock. It will be like, be like the flood of Noah. And will catch the unbelievers unprepared and unaware as Yeshua returns, the Son of Man. Look at Matthew 24, 37. As it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be at the coming of the Son of Man. And Matthew 24, 44. So you also must be ready. Because the Son of Man will come in an hour when you do not expect him. Therefore, we as his followers, we must be alert and ready at all times. Uh, for Yeshua will return at a day and an hour when we don't think he will. But perhaps the most dramatic reference to Yeshua as the Son of Man comes when he stands on trial before the Sanhedrin and Caiaphas, the high priest. Look at Matthew 26, 59. 
And the chief priests and the whole council, the whole Sanhedrin, kept trying to obtain false testimony against Yeshua in order that they might put him to death. But they could find none, even though many false witnesses came forward. But Yeshua kept silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us whether you are the Messiah, the Son of God. And Yeshua said to him, you've said it yourself. Nevertheless, I tell you, hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Note that in his response to the Kohen Haggadot to the high priest, Yeshua, he's quoting Daniel 7.13. He claims to be the, the promised Messiah, the divine Son of Man, seated with God, the Father, at his right hand. Indeed, Jewish expectation at the time was that the Messiah would be divine. That's why Caiaphas says, I am the Messiah, the Son of God. Likewise, in 1 Enoch, Messiah is called the Son of Man from, from Daniel 7. He's also called the, quote, prototype of the before time. So the intertestamental Second Temple Jewish literature calls Messiah the prototype of the ancient of days. As Colossians 1.15 says, the Son is the image of the invisible God. So Jewish expectation at the time was for a supernatural Messiah. So when Yeshua says, I'm the Son of Man, the Son of Man from Daniel 7, the Son of Man from 1 Enoch, the high priest understands what he's saying. And he tears his clothes. And he says in Matthew 26, 65, he's spoken blasphemy. He's worthy of death. For they knew what he was saying. By calling himself the Son of Man, he was claiming deity. His title, Son of Man, means the Son of all mankind. He's the divine, the one coming from heaven on the clouds. Yet he, he became a man in order to be our representative before the Father, before the Ancient of Days. And unlike the, fourth, the four beasts, his kingdom is eternal. His, he rules righteously with the authority of God. And he is returning to establish his kingdom. Daniel leaves us with the scene of worship in heaven in a never-ending, glorious kingdom of the Son of Man. Let's look at Daniel 7, 13. In my night visions I looked, and there before me was one like the Son of Man, coming in the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and people, men of every language, worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. His kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Daniel has this vision of the Son of Man, Yeshua, he, uh, who came one day in humility, who walked this, this dusty earth, who died on a cross, was raised from the tomb to be the hope for you and for me, the one whom we are to worship with passion. He is our one and only hope, and he is soon returning. This is his promise to you. And to me, this is his promise to young girls in Sudan who get raped and butchered and die singing his name. This is his promise to young men who get thrown into a fiery furnace and old men who get thrown into lion's dens. This is his promise to all who struggle and suffer but persevere. One day he will return and we will see him. And he will receive authority and glory and sovereign power. And on that day, thousands upon thousands and 10,000 times 10,000 will gather around and worship him, praising the Son of Man. Revelation 5, verse 1. 
Then I saw at the right hand of one seated on the throne a scroll written on the inside and back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one on heaven or earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or look into it. And I began to weep bitterly as one because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or look into it. One of the elders said to me, do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that, we, so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Then I saw between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, not a lion, but a lamb, standing as if slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, seven the number of completion. So I sent it, it to all the earth. He went and took the scroll from the right hand of the one who sits on the throne. When he'd taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell before the lamb, each having a harp and golden bowls of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed for God's saints from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you've made them a, a malachat kohanim, a kingdom of priests serving our God, and they'll reign on the earth. And they sing, worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. This lamb, the Messiah, Yeshua, is awe-inspiring. He, he's supremely formidable. He's the lion of the tribe of Judah, uh, the all-powerful king. He's not to be trifled with. He rules the nations with a rod of iron. He's the son of David, the Jewish redeemer. He's the son of God at the right hand of the ancient of days. This is no plastic Jesus. <laughs> this is no graven image. This is the son of God and the son of man. And this is what our response, therefore, should be. Revelation 5, verse 13. Then I heard every creature in heaven and earth and under the earth and in the sea and all of them singing to the one who sits on the throne and to the lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said amen, and the elders fell down and worshiped. Let us do the same. Amen. Let's stand and pray. Hallelujah. Thank you, Lord. Make the music team to come on up. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Lord, for these glorious lessons from Daniel 7. We see here that although, yes, there'll be persecution uh, and there'll be tyranny and there'll be suffering from ungodly rulers, especially under the false Messiah in the last days, nevertheless, we have hope. For we know how the story ends. Uh, we've read the back of the book. <laughs> the Son of Man is coming in the clouds. Yeshua's return, you will return, Yeshua, to vanquish evil and vindicate your saints and establish your eternal kingdom. And you'll be given power and wisdom and might and dominion and honor and glory and a kingdom that will never end. And this hope, let this hope, Lord, purify us. Our sure knowledge of your return, Yeshua. Let it help, help us, Lord, to, to motivate us uh, to live holy and pure lives. So, Lord, today, search me and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there be any offensive or wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting 
Help us, Yeshua, to be watching and waiting and ready for your return. Help us to live set apart, holy, pure lives as we await the, the day of our final redemption where the court sits and the books are open and all men are judged and you, Yeshua, take up your rightful throne. Lord, help us understand all who want to live godly lives in you will be persecuted and that suffering is an inevitable part of the process that leads to glory. Help us to realize that those who reign with you are those who also have suffered with you. But you, Yeshua, prevailed and redeemed us. So we bow down and we worship you today. For worthy is the Lamb. To you, Yeshua, we blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever and ever. Amen. Shabbat shalom.